Welcome back to our next edition of the CBB Review Studio Podcast. I am Dan Siegel, joined by today Matt Majinski from our own CBB Review. Ben Anderson cannot make us, cannot make it today, but we are still going to continue our CBB rank countdown. We have been counting down the 100 days leading up to the college basketball season, doing a team profiles every day on the CBB Review website, 100 through 1 to the start of the regular season, like I said. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk 65 to 61, so we're going to get started with our team we, as a committee, rank number 65, and that is the Virginia Tech Hokies. Mike Young now in year five, and in my opinion, he's done a pretty admirable job. A small group of Virginia Tech fans, for whatever reason, are kind of unhappy somewhat with what he's done, but there, I feel like their expectations are just skewed by what Buzz Williams did. And Virginia Tech is not a favorable program. I mean, there's a reason Buzz left to begin with to go to Texas A&M. But we look at 2023 to 2024, and we look at this roster. What are our realistic expectations for Virginia Tech? I think our realistic expectations for Virginia Tech are a team that can finish in the top half of the ACC and Mm -hmm. potentially earn a couple of quality wins maybe even crack the top 25 at some point. I really think so. I mean, there are a few teams that bring back guys in Sean Padula, Hunter Couture that were key players the year before and key players this year. I know they lost a lot as well, but overall, and I talked about this with Sam Bass on Matt's Madness the other day. He's a big fan of Virginia Tech. I'm not as big of a fan, but I still think that expectations are at the very least a team that should make a run at the NCAA tournament. See, yeah, at the very least, I could say NCAA tournament is very realistic. See, um, some of the problems that people have with Virginia Tech, they look at the front court. It's definitely shaky, and that's been kind of a staple for Virginia Tech in the last bunch of years. You know, they've gone from Kerry Blackshear to Kevin Luma to Justin Mutz and even a little bit Grant Basile last year. They've had that, and I don't think they'll have quite the presence this year. But with that being said, and this will kind of – go more to, more towards your point, I don't think a dominant post presence is required for a Mike Young system to thrive. I think it just it's happened to be there, but I don't think it's completely necessary. I think what's more necessary is what you mentioned, the two backcourt pieces in Padula and Couture that fit in very well. Yeah, I mean, you look at how good, you know, some of Mike Young's teams were before he got to Virginia Tech. He certainly thrived with backcourt players, that's this Hokies team. I think you you obviously still, especially in the ACC, need competent frontcourt players. I think Virginia Tech is good enough there. That's obviously what they lost with Grant Basile leaving um, and Justin Mutz as well. But bringing in Robbie Barron, a, a guy who has experience at Northwestern, a Northwestern team that was very good last year, he should fit in in this Hokies team. I think that you know where this team might struggle with is depth. I think they really only have a legit seven guys, and they're going to need at least an eighth guy. Maybe it's Tyler Nickel that can step up, um, transferring in from North Carolina. But like you mentioned, when you look at the backcourt of Virginia Tech, they might have a top five backcourt in the ACC, and that will win you some games. Yeah, I, I think they're a fringe tournament team. They'll definitely go like 500 or more in the ACC. What does 500 or a little over 500 mean in the ACC anymore? I don't even know, but – they're also just always a team that will be an upset scare. Every single year, it seems like they either scare or be a non-conference opponent that's significantly better than them. I know Villanova in the recent past. This year, their chance will be at Auburn. That's the best team they play in the non-con. 
but I just I think my my biggest concern with Virginia Tech that might hold them back, and this was really prevalent last year, was defense, and that might be exaggerated a little bit with their depth issues. Yeah, that's I mean that's a great point. I mean, while the offense should. I think the offense strikes me as an offense that should be able to score. I think this team will be able to score, but defensively they might just give up too many points. I mean, Sean Padula is 6'1", Hunter Couture is 6'3". They're both not the most athletic backcourt together. Um, sometimes you can play one off of the other, but they're going to be playing together, so that that's going to hurt them there. So, yeah, certainly a Virginia Tech fan base that should be happy with their roster, but it's not a team that blows me away. Okay, I agree with that. Let's move on to 64. We got UAB a team that continues to improve under Andy Kennedy. 22 wins in year one, then they go to 27 wins, make the tournament uh, as a 12 seed in year two. 29 last year did not quite make the tournament, but still a very successful season for UAB. Here's the thing, though. They had, the last couple of years, Jordan Jelly Walker, and now they do not. So, different looking team. A lot of lower level guys moving up. Matt, talk to me about that. Here's where I stand on UAB. Jelly Walker was a transcendent player for a program like UAB. They should put his jersey number up in the rafters probably this year because they might not get another player like Jelly Walker again. With that being said, Andy Kennedy is an experienced head coach. He's a guy that can definitely elevate this team. But when I look at the talent, and this is nothing against guys jumping up from JUCOs from community colleges from lower levels, but this is Division One college basketball. This is a new animal. At least on paper, this team doesn't look that great to me. I know Eric Gaines is a great player. He averaged over four assists last year. He can definitely be a guy that can, you know, blossom into a, a really good player, maybe even a first or second team guy in the in the conference. But overall, I mean, you lose a guy like Jelly Walker, it's gonna be it's gonna be tough to replicate that in the next season. I don't think UAB should have been 64th. I don't even know if they're a top 100 team in the country, if I'm being honest. Okay. Okay. I would say definitely lower than 64. I would say they probably are top 100, maybe 80 to 100 range. The thing mm-hmm. is when you have a lot of lower level guys moving up, and you mentioned a lot of them Juco, four of them Juco, the other one being Daniel Ortiz from North Alabama. If you have a lot of level uh, lower level guys moving up, it's, it's an adjustment to the competition, but also programs like UAB, we talked about North Texas last episode with Ben, and they have been able to have success with those guys. The problem is it's one or two guys usually that are filling little roles. It is not four guys trying to make up like the top seven, four of the top seven of the rotation. So even though all these guys were like superstars at that school, they're basically bringing in a junior college all-star team. With that being said, yes, it's a huge adjustment, but I I have faith in it because it, Andy Kennedy has won a lot of games at UAB, and it might be a little bit of a even more growing pains going to the first year in the AAC, but I tend to side with continuity when it comes to projecting college basketball programs one year the next, and even if the roster is not continuous, they're coaching is and I think that's just very important yeah you know that's a good player and they do bring in a pair of guys from Arizona Western College Yaxo Lendborg Marquise Hargrove they played together so that's somewhat continuity there if you want to go that route 
Um, James White, an underrated transfer from Ole Miss, where Andy Kennedy used to coach. I know they didn't, you know, tie in together at all. Uh, Kennedy wasn't White's coach, but uh, still uh, just an interesting tidbit there. Um, I just I look at the team and I, I understand that talent can come from anywhere, right? These guys are certainly talented basketball players. It doesn't matter what level. If you're averaging like Alejandro Vasquez averaged 18.4 points per game last season, it doesn't matter what level you're playing. It's still college basketball, but he's not going to average 18 points in Division One. Like he might not average 10. He can still be a Division One player, but he's not going to be the same type of player he was at his old school. I think that's what you're going to run into with UAB. You're going to have some growing pains, especially in the non-conference. And then, like you mentioned, it'll really be up to how Andy Kennedy improves this team and how they're able to play once they reach American Athletic Conference play. Can they go 500 in the AAC? We'll see. Yeah, and then I guess you could talk about the tournament because they'll have a lot more of an identity then. But And, you know, you, you got you got no more Houston at the top of that. So that definitely helps in terms of winning the AAC tournament. I still – I'm not sure I see it, but I think this team does win between like 22 to 25 games. Honestly, I I'm a little higher on them. I think they're, I think they're an NIT bound team, but let's move on to number 63. And this is the, this is one of your teams. The, one of the reasons you wanted to come on today, actually, because it's a Seton Hall Pirates. So I'm just going to give my quick little introduction and let you take it away. This is a team coached by Shaheen Holloway, who, was a splash hire, at least at the very least a splash hire based on the names that were being thrown out in the media. Of course, he was the one that was the part of that Cinderella St. Peter's run. He was the head coach there. And he is a guy who just goes to programs, rebuilds it, shocks the world. That's, that's his, that's his history. That's what's in his resume. They did go through some growing pains. They figured it out down the middle last down the middle of the year last year, then kind of faded off down the stretch. Could they be a little more consistent in year two? Or are you expecting similar, you know, slightly above average kind of to average kind of results? Well, first off, a shout out to Ben for taking the uh, the old school Seton Hall logo and putting it on the graphic. I uh, <laughs> love that logo. Um, Dan, I, I'm, I'm afraid of Seton Hall's overall play this season in the front court. But I think that where this team is being underrated right now is the back court. You talk about consistency. Well, you have it right there. You have a starting point guard in Kadari Richmond and a starting shooting guard in Alamir Dawes that are back on the floor in 2023. While they might not be stars, they both are very competent Big East players that averaged double digits in points last year. Kadari Richmond has played pretty high-level college basketball since he got onto the court as a freshman at Syracuse. He's kind of like one step away from maybe becoming an even better player. I feel like his potential is is pretty high and he's yet to really crack it consistently. He's had some games where you're like, wow, this guy can ball. He's had some games where you're like, is he going to, you know, is he going to improve on this three for 15 shooting night? You can say the same thing about Dawes. I worry about this team in the front court. Dre Davis is back. He's certainly a good player, but a couple transfers, Elijah Hutchins effort from Austin PA and then a Santa Clara guy in Jaden Bediaco. Those are going to be the guys playing for the starting center and and one of them is going to back up the other whoever's going to be the backup is going to be good but whoever's going to be the starter it's going to be a question mark from day one maybe they can surprise me maybe they can surprise people there's reasons right now that people are very low on the pirates and it starts in the front court i think 63 is an appropriate place to put them and for a big east team maybe that's a little bit underwhelming but i 
I don't know. I here's a thing that is probably going to work well for them, bringing in another three point shooting threat from St. John's, Dylan Adai Wusu. Mm-hmm. That's going to help, especially with Kadari Richmond the way he plays. He's a lot more of a slasher than a shooter, and if, if he could be a better facilitator, or he's a great facilitator, but if his passes could lead to more open shots and shots that are actually knocked down mm. that would certainly help and now you've got alamir dawes who was pretty much their only main three-point shooting threat last year you got another one on the wing that's certainly going to help free throw rate must improve from last season i agree but yeah i think that is something that'll help with the spacing i i mean like i said i agree with the 63 ranking that's kind of nit range especially for a for a power conference team but yeah. Anything else to add on Seton Hall before we move on to 62? Yeah, just that I think where people are low on Seton Hall, I think a lot of people might look at this team that had a pretty big roster turnover and may not have necessarily replicated it with other power conference transfers. But other than Tyree Samuel or Casey and Defo, I don't think Seton Hall lost a whole lot. Femi Odakale really didn't have big of a role last season. Trey Jackson and Jameer Harris's roles went down with Shaheen Holloway as head coach. They both averaged, at least Jackson averaged similar points, but both of them were more heavily involved in the offense when Kevin Willard was in South Orange. So I think that although Seton Hall lost five rotation players, it's Samuel and Defo that need to be replaced. That's why the questions are in the front court. But everything else, the backcourt, even depth with Jaquan Sanders, who showed some potential, Isaiah Coleman, a four-star recruit, I think Seton Hall is going to surprise people. But as you said, if I had to guess right now, if I had to make a prediction, I'd side with NIT over NCAA tournament. Okay, number 62. This is going to be an interesting one to talk about. We're going to talk about the Ole Miss Rebels. And to preface, I know a lot of people, including myself, think that the Chris Beard hire was pretty controversial due to the reasons that he was dismissed from Texas. We're not going to we, – we are going to acknowledge that. But with that being said, we're going to talk about it from a basketball perspective. And from a basketball perspective, his resume speaks for itself. So in that respect, it's a home run hire. I think it's really about just balancing expectations with high expectations because of the revamp of talent, but low expectations because of – where Ole Miss has come from recently and the fact that it's still clearly a rebuild. Yeah. It just seems like you look at Ole Miss and you're just thinking it's because it's Ole Miss, but you're not really looking at the roster that, and I know we're, we're looking at the roster us too. I'm saying people from the outside that might write them off. Like you mentioned, Chris Beard will make a program better just from a coaching standpoint, let alone all of the off the court drama that, you know, whether you disagree or agree with this hire, he will be able to coach this team up. Matthew Morrell is a star in the SEC. Brandon Murray was a great player at Georgetown. Alan Flanagan already was a good player in the SEC with Auburn. I mean, these are guys that know how to play basketball. He's just got to piece them together. They also are going to be a very tall team. I mean, this team is not going to have anyone under 6'4 on the court in that starting lineup. That's going to be tough to guard. They've got a 7'5 kid off the bench. Ole Miss is going to have length. They're going to be able to defend multiple positions. And they've got some scorers and experience on this team. To me, 62 is appropriate, Dan, 
in the respect that this team went 12 and 21 last year. And, you know, you don't know how this hire might work for them. Chris Beard was good at other schools. Who knows how it'll work here. But with everything I just said, I think Ole Miss might actually be a top 50 team in college mm. basketball. I, th- I think they are that talented. Yeah. No, the, the ceiling is high. Matthew Morrell for sure, because he was a legitimate M- or is a legitimate NBA prospect that decided to come back to Ole Miss. That is huge for them. Mm-hmm. Musa Cisse is a guy I want to talk about because he's such an interesting player <laughs> and case study. First off, I put him as my make or break player because we literally don't know if he's going to get his waiver yet and be able to play. But second off, let, let's just assume he's playing for the for the sake of this discussion. He came out as a borderline top 10 prospect in his recruiting class, spent some time at Memphis, has um, eventually now over at Ole Miss from Oklahoma State. And he's been a dominant, dominant defensive player, like arguably the best rim protector in the country. But he is still extremely raw offensively and that is the main hazard for this Ole Miss team if you look at their starting lineup because it's a lot about spacing right they they have their shooters that are okay but shot making is definitely something that that needs to be improved upon and I think if you could have a legitimate post presence with Musa Cisse which has not been the case yet he's not much of a shooter himself He's not very polished around the rim. What he is able to do is sometimes thrive in transition or moving to the rim on the pick and roll. If you could throw it to him in the post and kind of clear out some shooters around him, that's going to be so different for the Ole Miss offense versus, you know, he'll get you your six points, your eight rebounds, and block a million shots. No, and you bring up a great point there. I mean, you look at Cissé, Jamarian Sharp as well, guys that – are great at what they do best, but not great at the other parts of their game. In today's age of college basketball, I feel like you've got to be a big man that can see the court. I mean, that's really basketball in general nowadays because there's so many guys that are 6'10", 6'11", that can even bring the ball up the court nowadays. I mean, if you're going to be a 6'9", big man, 6'10", big man, you've at least got to be able to pass the ball. Uh, and with all these great players on this Ole Miss team, that could just bring this team to so many lengths. I'm excited to see where they're at. I really think that if you want an underrated team in the SEC, Ole Miss might be uh, might be the one to keep an eye on. All right, let's finish off with 61, a team that is in what exists as the Pac-12 now. Soon, <laughs> headed to the ACC. That is Stanford, who – all right, I- I'm just going to be like straight up here. Like This is another struggling program. They do lose Harrison Ingram. I personally don't think they belong nearly this high. I, I see the vision on this team. They're, they're recruiting well from the high school ranks. I see how they could potentially improve down the line. But I think 61 is way too high for Stanford. Do you have an argument to potentially refute that? I don't. like. I wouldn't put Stanford too much further down. Maybe I would have put them between 70 and 75. Like I, I like – I mean, Stoyakovich could be a star. I mean, he's he's an NBA talent right there. Spencer Jones is like, even though they lose Harrison Ingram, they bring back half of their top guys from last year. And then Jared Bynum's a guy who was a great facilitator in the Big East. So they have a good big three, but outside of them, there's no one else that really pushes the needle. And it's also a team that went 14 and 19 last season. You know, if you're going to be number 61, you probably should have more than just these three guys. 
it's I'm just I'm just not seeing it from that respect. But I do think that it's a Stanford team and a good Pac-12 that could still win some games. I mean, these guys, Bynum Jones and Stojakovic on the screen, can certainly take over a game and change a game. But can Stanford do it as a team throughout a whole season? That's the question. And we have them as our seventh-ranked Pac-12 team. The real question is, because we talked about it a lot last year, how the Pac-12 had some a few good teams up top, but then outside of that, it was very slim pickings. And I think this is a team that could win some games in the Pac-12. They'll probably finish in the top half, in my opinion. I think even above seven. But what does that mean? Does the Pac-12 get more than a few bids? Because they haven't recently. And I, I, I mean, we could look at their non-conference schedule right now. I'm not sure if you have it pulled up. But I, I just don't see the vision of Stanford being a tournament team. Yeah, like they play Arkansas. They're in the battle for Atlantis, which I don't know the strong okay. field off the top of my head. It's it's a strong field, but, I mean, it's tough. I, I also think, and again, this is what it gets down to in CBB rank. This is only a handful of us putting together these rankings. This isn't just one or two of us, but it also isn't 15 of us. So if, if someone has a team much higher than the rest of the people, it can skew it a bit. Like it's certainly not like our rankings where we have – 12, 13 people doing our weekly rankings, and it's going to be consistent. Um, so someone might have had Stanford higher than the rest of the people, and that, that's why they're 61st. I think Washington is better than Stanford. Washington was 73rd, I believe. Yeah. Like, like that confuses me. Washington has a better team than Stanford on paper. No, I, I agree with that. And I think it's kind of fun to be able to have, like, a committee do it, but then also be able to debate it because yeah. – yeah, but I don't know. I think a lot a lot of these teams, it depends on how the conference does around them because we're projecting them in the scheme of the entire country and we're doing it pretty early. It's it's fun to do that. But a lot of it depends on what the, the landscape of the conference looks like. And look, the Pac-12 might go out well in football. I think they potentially could. In basketball, I'm not sure they're going to go out too well. Yeah, especially because, like, and I know we'll get to other teams in the coming up uh, later on, but I, I feel like the bottom of the Pac-12 is getting better. I know we mentioned Cal way back. Cal, I mean, they only won like two games last year. They have a good, they have a good team this year. Um, but like the top of the Pac-12, UCLA lost so much. Stanford seems like just like a middle team. Like, like they went fourteen and nineteen. I could see this team going like seventeen and sixteen this year. You know, like like they'll improve because of a guy like Jared Bynum and a five-star in Stojakovic, and they don't really lose a lot of key players, but are, are they really going to get that? Like, are they going to win 20? I wouldn't bet on them to win 20 games. I wouldn't say that. No. Well, that will do it for today's edition of the CBB Review Studio podcast. We will continue coming up in a few days with numbers 60 through 56. There's one team on there in particular that I'm really excited to talk about. We'll not spoil it yet, but keep up with our CDB review rankings on this site. We have team profiles coming out every day and be sure to subscribe. If you have found us, whether it is on YouTube, whether it is on the audio platforms, including Spotify and Apple podcasts, please be sure to help us out. It is completely free on your end. And like I said, it is, it helps us out a lot. Thank you so much for watching and listening and take care.